came to Joshua when they got to the promised land and God used Joshua to lead him across the, prom- the waters of the Jordan to- into the promised land and face war and a lot of wars. Joshua is actually a pretty bloody book if you read it. Uh, there's a lot of wars and a lot of battles that go on at that point. But the problem is God told them to conquer the land, that he would go before them, he would lead them, and they were to conquer the land. They were to drive out its inhabitants. So in some cases that meant they resisted and there was war and death. And in other cases they were just to push them out. Either way, they were supposed to drive out the pagan uh, wicked people that were in this land. But they fell short. And Judges opens with that problem. They stopped short of finishing the job. So today I call this God of Avengers. Um, You know, I remember before there was YouTube, before there was Disney Channel, before there was Cartoon Network, before there was Nickelodeon, there was Saturday morning. Some of y'all may remember that. Some of you probably don't. But that was back when the TV still cut off at midnight. You remember that one? Um, but I would get up early every Saturday morning and watch cartoons without fail. And my favorite were the superhero ones. I loved, like, the Justice League that had Batman and Superman and all those guys. And Spider-Man would make an appearance and Wonder Woman and all that. Uh, they were all part of that. But these days, those are major movies. These days, the movie... The, the big hitters in the box office are always um, superhero-type movies, and The Avengers is definitely one of the biggest of all time. According to Dictionary.com, an Avenger is a person who exacts punishment or inflicts harm in return for an injury or wrong. Here in Judges, we have maybe the original Avengers throughout Judges. But again... The story is not about Avengers. It's about the God of Avengers. This is the story of God, not the story of man. So even as we see, quote, heroes, we have to be careful that we remember there's only one hero in the story. It's the story of God. And God's actions here are not simply based on payback or getting even. They're based on justice and grace at the same time, the both. So today's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be maybe a little less like a sermon and more like a discipleship group. We're going to read through some good stuff today, so you're definitely going to need a Bible. But Judges chapter 2, verse 18 is kind of where we'll hinge out from. So in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, his people, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Lord, your word is awesome. I always want to pause a minute and recognize that it's your word. um, That I kneel to what your word says. I don't ever want to put my word in your word. I want you to put your word in me. Not just now, but always. Lord, I pray that we recognize that you are the authority and you are the teacher and your word speaks truth. And I have a privilege of holding a microphone and standing on a stage. But, Lord, I'm just uh, I'm here to learn with like anybody else. I'm a student uh, as well as anybody in the room. And I pray your word speaks to all of us, myself included. And I ask these things for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. So maybe you said these words before. I would bet probably everybody in the room probably has. I'm not going to say that for a fact, but probably. I know you've heard them before, and they may have got honored, 
But more than likely not, because if they get said, they usually don't get honored. But the first part goes like this. God, if you just get me through this, what? Um, (laughs) Yeah, if you just get me through this, I'll serve you. If you just get me through this, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again if you just get me through it this, this time. I remember the first time I got drunk. Wine coolers. To this day, I remember the brand, the smell, everything. And I was probably 16. I don't remember how old. But I remember the first time. I remember wandering around lost in my own yard. I remember talking to a horse. And then I remember violently throwing up for hours uh, till it turned into dry heaving. And I thought I was literally going to die. And I spit out those words. And I survived. But how long do you think it was before I was right back at it, you know? Uh, the book of Judges is full of stories like that, and it reads like a superhero movie here, one account after another. And uh, as Josh said, we're going to look at this for the next few weeks, not, not too long, but a few, about three weeks or so. But remember, 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 it's the story of God, not superheroes, Okay. It's the story of God. So any way we look at this, we should be looking at it to see what is it telling us about God. All right? So I always give you a point to remember. So your one point to remember here, when we, re- when we repent, God is gracious to provide deliverance. And when we learn to know God through his word, we may, he may even use us to provide it for others. That's back there on a the sheet. If you've got one, that's fine. If you don't, you can get one on the way out. But when we repent, God is gracious to provide deliverance. And when we learn to know God through his word, he may even use us to provide that for others. So, I said it before, I'm saying it again, you're going to need a Bible. Did I already say that? Okay, just making sure. Judges chapter 2, verse 18. Let's lay back into this again for just a second. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, specific People, not just in general, not for the whole world, for them. The Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who, uh, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So judge is a terribly unpopular word today. I get that. Even more so right at the moment because of the news. But even past that, just the word judge in general is a negative Term, a common phrase uh, that I grew up hearing, and especially in the prison and drug world, uh, is only God can judge me, which I always found that funny because of all the people that you would want to judge you, I would think it would not be him. Like, let anybody but God judge me. I can lie to y'all. I can't lie to him. Why would I only want God uh, to be my judge? But there's also the misapplication of Matthew chapter 7, judge not. Lest she be judged, you know. But nobody keeps reading that. It says, for the same measure you use will be used against you. That, that just means that you, you're, you're being held to the same standard that you're judging others by. If you're okay with that, then that's fine. If your standard is the word of God, then that's a different thing. It's totally misinterpreted. Um, and when it comes to believers, we're 100% responsible for judging other believers. Not, not in an ugly way. It's always for repentance, for restoration. It's to edify and build up the church and help us grow closer to be like Christ. And in fact, a whole book of the Bible we're reading is called Judges. 
clearly God doesn't hate the term uh, judge as it so often gets seen or, or talked about. A judge was, in, in this book though, a judge was not a cruel, hateful person that just went around talking about people. A judge was also not somebody who wore around a black robe and uh, passed judgments and read over the law. Might have done that, but that wasn't, that wasn't their primary rule. A judge ruled the nation and determined kind of the direction of the nation, and they were directly empowered by God for that purpose. So the people here, it says they're, in, back in verse 18, it says they're groaning to God. Not because they want a new job. Not because they want a new car. Not because... The floors in the church still haven't been finished, you know, not because uh, their girlfriend broke up with them, not because they didn't make the A they thought they were going to make at school, not for any of those reasons, but because they are suffering terribly. The word groaning there, it's a word that's used in the context of a person who's mortally wounded. You know what mortally means? I'm dying. Somebody who's literally, physically facing death and dying. In that moment, what's coming out of their mouth to God, that's what these people, that's their heart, I guess you could say, towards God and when it says they're crying out. You ever been there? Uh, maybe, maybe you face cancer, I don't know. I, I don't know what everybody in the room has been through. Maybe it was drug addiction. Maybe it was just depression. Depression can get you there. You know, whatever it is that's pushed you to that moment where you're groaning to God. You're like, you feel like death is at the door. And you're groaning to God. And it says God is moved to pity. It's wild. That is one word. It's the same word we say repent. Which is strange. Like God repented. That's not what it's saying. But that's the word. Repent just means to turn. That's, that's all it means, it, uh, to do a 180, to turn. So the idea here is that their groanings and their crying and their hurt and their pain and their suffering and their agony repeatedly being expressed and cried out to God makes him turn towards them. Not that he's not there, but it makes him turn his attention towards them. And it says the Lord was with the judge. That, that doesn't mean necessarily he stood beside him. It could be. But it basically means that his power, his authority, God's power, God's wisdom, God's authority was upon the judge. And you'll see this really evident when we get to Samson. Because the Holy Spirit of God rushes on him uh, in order to execute whatever God's plan is in the moment. It's the same kind of idea. And I wish I could say it ended there. But the very next verse says otherwise. So if you've got your Bible open, Judges 2, look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, what happened? They turned back. More corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And that's the vicious cycle of the book of Judges. Sin, rebellion, judgment from God, oppression from enemies. Suffering, repent. A judge comes up, brings peace, and then sin takes right back over again, and you repeat the phrase. It's actually kind of a sad 
repetition of events. And there's another phrase that's repeated throughout Judges. Uh, it's actually the very last sentence in the book, but it's repeated multiple times. The very last sentence in the book, Judges 21, 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own sight. Man, I'm not that guy, but we could say America's heading that way fast. Uh, but I'm just not trying to rabbit trail, but just saying. But here's the question. It says there's, repeatedly, there's no king in Israel, and everybody did according to their own way. Was there a king in Israel? Yes, God was their king. Problem was not that there was no king in Israel. The problem was they didn't respect anybody as king and did their own thing and went their own way. Um, so people say the Bible is pretty boring. Some do. I know I've heard that. I know I've heard that, man, I try to read it. I just get bored with it. Well, today I hope that changes a little bit. Uh, it should because these are probably the coolest stories ever. Anytime I hear guys say that in the prison, I'm like, have you ever read about Ehud? Who? Well, you're going to right now, and you'll see why I say that. So get a Bible and open it up. Turn to chapter 3. We're just going to look at a couple of... I'm going to straight read through it with you and talk about it for just a minute, and then we'll be done, honestly. But we're going to read a couple of accounts here of uh, individuals. And you'll see, I mean, even if you look, if you're looking at a Bible... uh, and you look, say, back up to chapter 2, and you look at verse 11, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served foreign gods. It tells you that uh, God raises up judges in verse 16. We just read and talked about that throughout verse 18. Uh, and then you look at verse chapter 3, and you look at verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot. It continues on, verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil. So you see this cycle continuing to happen of God raising up a deliverer and then continuing to return back to evil. But chapter 3, verse 12 is where we're going to lay in on this guy here. It says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Quick note there. God strengthened this king against it. This is not out of God's hand. This is not like, okay, well, you messed up, so uh, I hope things don't go bad for you. I mean, this is God's act. And it says in verse 13, he gathered himself... Uh, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, these are enemies of Israel, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, how long? Eighteen years. So I'm not saying there's anything significant about that number, except to say that's a long time. So even though this story seems like it goes by quick, that's 18 years. Where were you 18 years ago? Just put that into perspective, okay? So it's been a long time. And then the people, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, that would just seem random, except that matters. Uh, particularly in that time period, even in the time of Jesus, left-handed people were considered weaker, less, maybe even cursed 
because it was uncommon, right? It's not the common way that most people are right-handed, but obviously left-handed occurs. My daughter's fairly left-handed. She might be ambidextrous, but uh, my mother's left-handed. But either way, it was not a common thing. It was seen somewhat as a curse. So that's why it's being pointed out, but there's more to that, okay? The people of Israel sent tribute by him, or taxes, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So this dude, Ehud, this left-handed man, is charged with delivering the taxes to this king who has conquered and oppressed Israel. And he who made for himself a sword with two edges, cubit in length, that's from your elbow to your fingertip roughly. So two edges, it's noting that because that was uncommon. Most of the time a sword would be like what we imagine an old school sword. You know, it was flat on one side and sharp on the other. Uh, It was not common to have a, a sword with two edges, but in this case... Here he's making one. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So he's hidden this thing on his right side. Um, Now, the reason for that is because he's left-handed. So if I were a soldier, my sword is going to be on my left side so my right hand can grab it and draw it out. All right. So he's left-handed, so the sword is on his right side. Well, that's significant because because he was considered cursed or whatever else as a left-hander. Nobody's searching people over here. So as he comes to the king with this sword hidden on the other side, nobody's checking that. They just check for a sword right there. If the, if the guy's not carrying a sword, they're not paying any attention to it. Well, he had one, but he had it hidden. And it was on the opposite side of the body from where anybody would check because no left-handed man was going to come in there anyway. Right? All right? So it says, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So he brings the taxes, he gives it to him. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Uh, Pretty wild that it says that, but there's a reason. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried it. So he had help bringing it, and he sent them away. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So what what happens is he leaves, he gives the tribute. Now, I don't know, did he chicken out the first time or what? But he's got the sword. He gets in. He gets all the way there. He presents the stuff. I don't think he ever got alone with the king, but he presents the stuff. And then they turn around to leave, and they're leaving and they come back, this whole entourage, and they get as far back as Gilgal, which I'm not going to try to show you on a map. It doesn't really matter. They get back to this area, and there are idols there. Gilgal was a special place to God, but there's idols there. And I feel like he sees the idols and gets filled with rage and says, you, you guys go on back. And he turns around, and he goes right back to this king again. And he says... Back half of verse 19 here. I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded, silence, be, be quiet, everybody, everybody leave. And all his attendants went out from his presence so he can get his little secret message. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool chamber on the roof. People would hang out up on the roofs of homes. It's like here, except there's no AC. So they go up on the roof and they had shade and stuff like that on the roof. We wouldn't. Our roofs would be blazing, but they were designed that way with a... Uh, you know, a space up there where they could be cool. Um, and it says, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat 
And he who reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he didn't pull the sword out of the belly and the dung came out. That is in your Bible, ladies and gentlemen. That is in your Bible. All the girls are like gross. All the dudes are like, dude, I know, I get it. It's pretty wild right there. Tells you why it was mentioned that he was a large man. You know, the whole sword goes in, spills out his back end. I mean, it's, it's gross, but there it is. Verse 23. Then he who went out on the porch, or patio, whatever you want to say, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he'd gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet or the cool chamber. So they thought that the, they smell it. <laughs> Frankly, that's what it means. They see the doors are locked and they smell it and they think he's in the bathroom. And they waited till they were embarrassed. <laughs> I don't know how long that takes, but at some point they're like, um, are you okay in there? You know what I mean? Like it's gotten to the point of being embarrassing, the stink and the doors not being unlocked. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols uh, and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim there. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. So now he comes back and literally assembles an army in moments, and they charge back down the hill towards uh this king and he fought and they let's see verse 28 and he said to them follow me for the lord has given your enemies the moabites into your hands good for him i killed the king follow me that's not what he said remember it's god's story right god's story he's saying today god has given the moabites into your hands you today your freedom comes so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. So they wall up. They build a wall in the, against the Jordan. Moab's on the east side of the Jordan River. So they build their, make their stand at the river. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for how long? Eighty years. That's a long time of peace. I'm not trying to dig super deep here. I just want you to see the story. I just want you to see the story of this man used by God to do this awesome thing. Raise up a whole city, I mean a whole nation to follow him. And they have rest for 80 years. Uh, I'll skip on down to chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel, what? Again... Again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So he lived a pretty good long life, 80 years after this event occurred. We don't know how old he was when the event started, but he made it 80 years after that. And whatever point he died, uh, the people of Israel turned right back to what they're doing. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So Canaan is synonymous with Israel. So this person is claiming to be king of the whole land, even though Israel's come in. 
Even though all these wars have occurred in Joshua's day, this king has come in and claimed to be king. And he reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera. He lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here we go again. For help. For he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So now it's been 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess. Yes, they existed. The wife of Lipido was judging Israel at that time. So, hey, she's a prophetess and a judge. So she's leading the nation of Israel in the role of judge at this moment in time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor? Doesn't say, I'm commanding you to go. She said, Has not God told you to go? Now, that doesn't mean, Did God come to you and you're ignoring it. She's just saying, She's a prophetess. She's speaking for the Lord. She's speaking as a judge of the nation. And she's saying to him, rhetorically, God has called you to go set these people free. All right? God's called you to do this. God's commanded you go. Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulon. And I, speaking as God here, I, God, will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, which has chariots in his, with his chariots and his troops. And I, God, will give him into your hand. Well, Barak says to her, if, uh, see, we've already messed up, right? If, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. Didn't she say God said go? Say anything about me going. And either way, God told you to go, not me. But this woman, man, awesome as she is, she says, I'll surely go. I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out to Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah with him. Now Heber the Kenanite had separated from the Kenites, the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tents as far away as the oak of uh, Zanim, which is near Kadesh. That's not a random statement. You're going to hear this Hebor guy again here in just a second. It goes on and says, When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him. Think, think about 900 iron chariots. I can't even get my brain around what that looked like. Um, and all the men who were with him from Harashet Hagayim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord, not her, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Good point here that God is the one who's going first. God is the one who's battling. God is the one who's leading the way. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed, the Lord routed, the Lord routed. 
Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. God's hand, God's sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So he takes off running for his life. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Harashet uh, Agayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Tent is, is we're, we're at a Bedouin. You know what a Bedouin is? People who live in tents, they move across the desert, and they may stay for years, they may stay for days, but they just kind of never land. They shift around the desert, pitching tents, and living in them. Abraham was such a guy. All right, so Sisera comes to this tent of Jael, the wife of Hebar the Canaanite. So this is this guy back in verse 11 we were looking at. So this is his wife. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Hebar, the Canaanite. So this guy feels he's safe here. And Jael, this woman, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. So she hides him. He lays on the desert ground, I guess, or maybe on a rug, and she covers him with another rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. He's dying of thirst. He's, he's begging here for water. So she opens a skin of milk. It's an odd response. You're begging for water. You get milk. It would have been warm milk. No refrigerators. You know what I'm saying? What does warm milk do when you drink it? Makes you sleepy, right? He's already exhausted. And now she's, you could say, old school drugged him. <laughs> Gave him warm milk. And gave a drink and then covered him. So now he's had some warm milk. He's exhausted and he's in the dark. And he's covered. Out cold. Guarantee it. And she said, and he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Habar, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. Again, that is in your Bible. That is brutal. That is brutal. And this is a woman, again, who was a Bedouin. She was probably the one that pitched the tent half the time. She knew how to drive a tent spike. You know what I'm saying? From temple to temple, straight down, all the way into the ground, spiked this guy's head down. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I'll show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into uh, her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg still in his temple. So on that day, God, God, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him from the land of Canaan. So the heroes, not Deborah. It's Jael. And it's funny because we always hear about Deborah all the time. And Deborah's awesome. She was a judge. So this is a cool, you know, if you want the, the woman's story, this is a great one. It's not Ruth. We'll get to Ruth. I know Ruth is a good one. But this is a good one too. You got Deborah who's the judge of the nation, ruling the nation and the prophetess. And the warrior hero here, the assassin, is also a woman. Awesome story. Awesome story. Um, so what do we do with this? I know I just more or less read them, but take them with you. But what do we do with this? Well, let's wrap it up with this. In Acts chapter 10, 
Peter says this, and it's pretty awesome. Peter says this in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. He says, God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God is the judge of the living and the dead. God is the judge. To him, Jesus All prophets bear witness to Jesus. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Maybe you're the one that feels like you're overrun with the enemy. Maybe you feel oppressed. Maybe you feel like you're in a place of groaning. Maybe you feel like a a slave. I don't know, is it sickness or uh, depression or anger or loneliness, cocaine, alcohol, bitterness? I don't know what it is. Maybe you feel like you're better off dead. I can tell you some good news. God has raised up a judge for you. And when I say raised up, I mean raised from the dead, a judge from you that not even death can conquer you. If you cry out to him, if he's the one you're crying out to, it's just a simple decision to repent. Can you admit who you are? Can you just own it? You know, can you admit who you are? I know, I know I've sinned. I know I've rebelled. I know that I'm not right with you, God. Can you repent? Can you believe who he is? I trust, I trust who you are. I trust you created all things. I trust you are who you say you are. And can you trust that what he's accomplished is enough? Jesus, I'll never be good enough, but I know what you did is. Jesus, I'll never be able To make this right. But you have. Your death on the cross was enough. You beating death. By raising from the dead was enough. I don't understand it. I can't entirely explain it. But I trust it. If that's you today tell him. I'm not asking you to come up here to me. I'm not asking you to repeat after me. Just tell him. Just tell him today. Well what about those of us who have given our lives to Christ already. Uh, If you're. In the room today, and you've already done that, we may not uh, ever smuggle a sword into the chamber of a wicked king, you know, or govern a nation or lead an army into battle or assassinate an army commander with a tent spike. Now, that might not ever be us, but again, cool as they are, Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Jael, they were not the heroes. They were not the avenger. Their God was. Their God was the avenger. And I would say for most of us, more often than not, we're not like the judge here. We're more like Israel here. Who needs the judge? Who needs the deliverer? But what it does do here is it tells us something about God. And I said it already. When we repent, God is gracious to provide deliverance. And when we learn to know God through his word, he may even use us to deliver others. So again, back in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, Peter said, He command, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. Stand up with me if you don't mind, if you can, and the team's going to come back up. We're going to do one more song, but here's the question I want to leave you with, if you're a believer in the room for sure. Where are you? 
Where are you in relation to where he is? Where are you in relation to where he is? You know, and I mean that a couple of ways. A couple of ways. Are, are you feeling oppressed by the way to sin? Even as a believer, it happens, right? Are you feeling oppressed by the way to sin? Well, it might be time for you to cry out to him. It might be time for you to repent and cry out for deliverance from whatever that sin is. I don't know what it is, but it might be time for that. Are you living a bored Christian life? That's the one that I always think about with this. Are you living a bored Christian life? Do you read that story and go, man, I wish I could. I wish God would. Is that you? Well, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? What have you done so far in obedience to Christ in order to see him use you in such a way? Because I'll tell you right now, he will. He will. So now you have the answer. You want that? He'll do it. How do I know that? He said he will. Go into all the world and what? Make disciples of all nations. Try that and see if you don't live an adventure like what we just read in some sense. Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing. Thank you for the privilege of opening it, reading it, loving it, sharing it, holding it. I say that for all of us, not for not just for me. God, I pray that we encourage others with it as we have been encouraged by it. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for defeating the greatest of enemies, the one that oppresses all of us. Thank you for providing life beyond death, that we don't have to remain in a grave, that that's not all the hope we have, that we know beyond that, Lord, that you raise us to be with you in a kingdom created by you for your glory. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.